I wanted to take a, a, uh, this whole day to focus on the meaning of baptism. Why do Christians and why have Christians throughout the ages done this thing that might be considered odd to the rest of the world? So we have been going through uh, Timothy um, and we were there last week and we were in a crucial chapter last week and we didn't get through all that we wanted to get through last week. We'll cover that in a couple weeks when we get back to 1 Timothy. But now we're going to be all over the place because we're going to look at baptism. So there, there won't be one particular text. Uh, there will be many that we're looking at. And our hope is that this idea of baptism given to us from the Lord will aid us in our faithfulness as a church. It'll help us to be faithful. As a body, doing the things God has called us to do, and baptism is one of them. Um, I don't know if you heard, but the last couple of days I had the privilege of being in Morton, Illinois. Uh, probably never heard of Morton, Illinois. I wouldn't have known of it unless uh, my uh, Ashley's actually grandparents lived there. Uh, they both passed away in November, and we were flown out there to, to be a part of a memorial service. And uh, it was a, a great time. There was this stuff on the ground, this white stuff, all over the place. Really odd. I didn't know what to do with it. It was cold and wet and uh, these, these things dangling from roofs that they're called icicles, I think, or something like that. Um, freezing out there. Uh, snow everywhere. Uh, but one of the things that we got to do was uh, be served by a church, Grace Morton. We're Grace Rancho. They call their church Grace Morton. Um, we're not in any way related other than we believe the same gospel and I think very much like-minded in a lot of different things. Um, but I thought to myself as we were being served by this church that I would love to be similar to this church 20 years from now. Uh, they seem like a, a grown-up version of what we are. <laughs> um, we were served so generously by this church. The, the, the People rallied around our family as we did this memorial service, old and young, working together to serve us meals, to show us hospitality, to take us around their church, uh, totally willingly on a Friday afternoon, devoting their day to serving our family in this memorial service. What a gift it was. I, I came back completely refreshed. Um, by God's work out there in this little town, Morton, Illinois, 15,000, 16,000 people total. And um, as, as I have the opportunity to be a part of other churches, even though I'm not on a Sunday morning, just to see kind of what they're like and learn a little bit about them, um, I'm always thinking about what does this mean for us? Like, how do I learn something and bring it back to my home church? And, um, and often the, the takeaway is something along the lines of, to get there, to get to faithfulness down the road where, where young and old together are laboring in the gospel for his glory to build the church, it starts with small steps of faithfulness today, doesn't it? It uh, doesn't always start with planning these big grandiose events or these things that we hope in one overnight uh, to explode the church in size and suddenly become some mighty force in the community. It's not that way. I don't think God's intention for the church is that way. It's often steps that are small, but consistent in faith toward obedience 
to the scriptures. And so that means that uh, things like baptism, which I'm not sure any of you, maybe you have, um, have heard an entire sermon on baptism, uh, but this stuff matters because it's clearly given to us in scripture. And so I want this morning to kind of be a long extended look on what we're doing and why. And uh, at various points, I'll have you look at certain texts. Uh, right now, I guess the best place for you to open to would be Deuteronomy chapter four. We'll get there in a second. Uh, but I want in your mind to think of the church and its relationship with the world. The church and its relationship with the rest of the world. The church throughout history has not always known how it's supposed to be a part of the world or be in the world. What is the church's relationship with the world? Some in ages past have chosen the pathway that you might call abandoning the world. Um, the world is filled with sinners. The world is filled with temptation at every turn. Uh, Christians, in order to be holy, in order to be set apart, need to completely abandon it in every respect. Uh, this is especially prominent in the Middle Ages when monks and monasteries and nuns and nunneries popped up all over the place, especially in Europe, as Christians tried to exclude themselves from the world, isolate themselves from any kind of external temptation, devoting themselves entirely and completely to God in ways that were often overly extreme, uh, borderlining asceticism, things like that. People trying to totally abandon the world. And sometimes people have thought that the church is meant to do that, and that's the best way for the church to exist in the world. Others have tried a different approach. This approach is more common in our day. We don't know, or maybe we don't know that many Christian monks that are isolating themselves from the world, but you probably know people who instead of abandoning the world are trying to adopt the world. They're trying to adopt the world. And what I mean by that is their approach to uh, living in the world as Christians is they're going to try to win the world by becoming like the world. They're going to try to win the world by being uh, part of the trends of the culture, the fads of the day. They're trying to become like the world, to win the world. Uh, often this mindset expresses itself in the church when the church tries to be cool, the church tries to be hip, it tries to do things that the culture would love and accept. Sometimes the mindset is churches should not feel churchy. Uh, they should feel more like something the world is used to, maybe a little bit more like a concert or some entertainment venue that you are a part of. Uh, people up front are dressing like celebrities on TV. And of course, uh, the idea is the make to make the transition from the world into the church as seamless as possible so that there's no difference and sometimes uh, it can feel like a bait and switch. Hey, come into here. Um, and we're just like the world. It's just like everything you've ever known. But here's the gospel uh, packaged in um, if they're preaching it at all. The biblical model doesn't abandon the world. The biblical model doesn't adopt the world and try to become like it. It doesn't go to either extreme. It doesn't reject the world. It doesn't receive the world. It is aiming to redeem the world. Its hope is to be in the world, but not of the world. I mean, a picture that might help the analogy is the, the big ship on the stormy seas, right? The ship is on the seas. The waters are not in the boat, but the boat is on the waters. If the waters get into the boat, what's happening to the boat? The boat's going down. This is the church in the world. The world is around us. We're in the world. We're sailing through the stormy seas of 
the world. But the world is not ever meant to come into the church in such a way that the world is taking over and the mindsets of the world are taking over. What happens to the church when the world's mindsets take over from the inside? Is that the church will begin to sink into irrelevance and they will have no prophetic gospel ministry because there will be no distinction between God's people and the world. Distinction, distinct. Think of that word. That's a good word to describe how God wants the church to exist in the world. It wa- God wants his people to be distinct, set apart. According to Isaiah 49.6, God had chosen Israel to be a light to the nations. They were not to be like the nations. In fact, Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 2, Thus says the Lord, Learn not the way of the nations. The people of God were always among the nations, but they were never to be like the nations. They were always to be different from the nations. They were not to absorb their practices. They certainly were not supposed to worship their gods. And God set up Israel to be totally and completely distinct from the nations so that in seeing Israel, God would be seen. Something of the character of God would be recognized. Now you're in Deuteronomy and you're in chapter 4. And I want to point this out to you that this was God's way from the beginning to make his people distinct, look at chapter 4 and starting in verse 5. He says this, See, I have taught you statutes and rules, as the Lord God, Lord my God commanded, you, commanded me, this is Moses speaking, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of peoples who... When they hear of all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us, whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? You see, God gave rules and rituals and ceremonies and signs and symbols to the nation of Israel so that in doing them, they would be recognized as distinct, set apart from the world, so that the nations, looking in at the nation of Israel, would see them and say, what kind of God do you serve? They were to be distinct. He gave them all kinds of laws and circumcision was part of that to to symbolize entrance into the covenant relationship of the people of God. He gave them rituals to do sacrifices. If you've read through the Old Testament, you'd be familiar with many of these things that even now to modern ears seem odd and definitely set apart Israel as distinct. But all these things were given to Israel to function something like a team jersey. This is what you're supposed to do. And in doing these things, you're putting on something on your life as a people that makes you marked out as my people. Because you do these things, because you live this way, because you have these ceremonies, because you have these rituals, you are wearing the team jersey that says on the front, God's people. Now the church has been given the same call. The church has been given the same call. We are not to shut out the world and rejecting it. We are not to receive the world, becoming like it. We are aiming to redeem the world. And so what God wants us to do, like he had the call on Israel, to be a light to the nations. And what that means is we need to be distinct 
from the world, different from the world. And certainly, Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 declares the distinctions of the character of God's people versus those who are not God's people, right? The character of the people are to be different. What are God's people to be like according to Jesus? Well, they're, they're poor in spirit. That's not what the world's like. They're meek, mourning over their sin. The world's not like that. And Jesus goes through, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Their character is meant to mark them off from the world. But there's another, and in fact, there's more things that God wants the church to use as a way of marking them off from the world. It is more than our inward character. That's not, that's the, maybe the primary way we are meant to be distinct. But God intends inward realities to be demonstrated publicly through certain signs and symbols in the church. You know where I'm headed, don't you? Specifically, baptism and communion. They're called ordinances because Jesus ordained that the church should regularly do these before he ascended into heaven. And this morning, we're going to be talking about the ordinance of baptism. Baptism. Next Sunday, we hope to talk, Lord willing, on communion. Now, we're going to look at baptism, and I want to look at it from three different angles. It's kind of almost like we're turning around something to get every look at it. I want to first look at the word baptism, then we're going to look at the command of baptism, and then we're going to look at the symbol of baptism, and then when we look at what the word means, and we look at how it's commanded in Scripture, and then we look at what it symbolizes, it'll help you understand the whole picture of what in the world this thing called baptism is. So let's start by looking at the word baptism. In the New Testament, there's a Greek word repeated again and again. It comes in different forms, bapto and baptizo. Bapto is the verb that means to dunk or to immerse under water or totally underneath something. Uh, the emphasized form or the emphatic form of that verb is baptizo. So bapto and baptizo are the same form of the word or obviously have the same root, but baptizo, uh, meaning baptism, is an emphatic or a more strong way of saying bapto. And the word bapto is used often to refer to uh, a dye. Um, you could think of like a bowl of, of purple dye and think of a, a cloth that you would want to be completely colored. You would dunk it, you would bapto this thing into the purple dye so that it's fully immersed and it comes out the color that you want it to be. The word always refers to an immersion. It refers to a dunk. In fact, uh, the people who broke away from the reformers in the 1500s, uh, the reformers, John Calvin, Martin Luther, Ulrich Zwingli, uh, many of those guys, they were all baptizers of babies, infant Baptists. And some of the people of the Reformation broke away from them. They were called Anabaptists. Anna meaning again. Uh, Baptists, again, is kind of what they were being called. And a lot of those people were called by those who didn't get what they were doing, dunkers. Because it was such an interesting thing that they were doing. They're dunkers. They're dunking people in the water. And that really is what the word means. Bapto, baptizo. It's dunking. It's immersion. It's underneath water. It's fully underneath. In fact, the word also came to mean over time that 
it had to do with being fully and completely identified with something, uh, so as to almost be completely submerged in something. Uh, Jesus spoke of being baptized with his suffering in Mark chapter 10. And that is to say he was looking forward to this time that he would go to the cross, that he would die and be baptized, submersed in his suffering, in his pain and in his wrath-bearing sacrifice, his propitiation on the cross, he was going to be baptized into suffering. Paul spoke of the Israelites being baptized into Moses, which was to say that they were so immersed in his leadership that Moses came to identify the Israelites. The word is immersion. The word is dunking. That's what the word means. You don't find it ever speaking of a sprinkling or a pouring. It's not spoken of that. In fact, there's a passage in uh, Matthew chapter 3 and in John chapter 3 when Jesus is getting baptized in the Jordan River and John the Baptist is baptizing all the different people who are coming for John the Baptist's baptism. Uh, the, the words are very clear and they indicate uh, underneath the water immersion, submersion into baptism or uh, into the water. Uh, he, he writes with the preposition, he, the, the people went in the Jordan and then after the baptism, they came out of the Jordan. It doesn't say they came to the Jordan and they were baptized with the Jordan or with the water from the Jordan River. They went into the river so that they could fully be immersed. There's an interesting passage that confirms the idea of full immersion in John chapter 3, verse 23, where John the Baptist is said to be baptizing. It says in 323 at Anon near Salim, because, listen to this, there was much water there. Uh, they needed enough water to get people under it so they could have a legitimate baptism. If sprinkling was a valid form of baptism, uh, you wouldn't need to go to a place where there was much water. And so baptism, in order to properly symbolize what it symbolizes, we're going to get to this in a little bit, there has to be a full submersion underwater. I remember um, when I was in uh, high school, I was given the opportunity to go to the Philippines actually two times, my junior and senior year in high school, I went to the Philippines. And the second time I was there, um, for whatever reason, whether this is good or bad or wise and the leadership to allow this to happen, they had me, an 18-year-old kid, baptize a couple people who were coming into their church. Now, because the mission out there and the church that sent us, we were a Grace Brethren Church, the, it's a trine immersion, three dunks, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And... Um, I had no idea what I was doing. I had never baptized one in my, anyone in my life, but I knew, according to what the leaders told me, that these people need to get fully underwater. So you can imagine when I go to baptize the first person, and it's this, uh, this, this kind of petite guy who's in the water with me and a little bit resistant to going under. But you know, the text says immersion. We got to get them under. And so I baptize him in the Father, and he goes kind of partially under, but his hair's still dry on top. So what do I have to do? i got to do it again in the sun, but I'm going a little firmer this time. I had to get him under. Why? Because that's what the word means. Now, it's a little bit humorous. If your hair doesn't fully go under, that's okay. That's okay. But what we're saying is for the symbol to make sense, it's a, it's a full immersion. That's what the word means. It's a dip. In fact, baptism, that word itself in English, 
is just a transliteration of what the Greek word is. You notice that. A translation means you give the meaning of the word. You translate it into what it means. A transliteration means you just take the Greek word, change them into English letters, and put it into English. It doesn't actually give the definition of the word. And so if they were to actually translate the word in the New Testament, all the references to baptism that you see in the New Testament would have been translated immersion or submersion or a dip or something like that. But since the translators didn't do that, they just transliterated and kept the Greek word kind of Greek. And so it came into the English language as a technical word to refer to what the church does in submerging believers who are identifying with Christ. Okay, so that's the word. You got an understanding of the word now? Hopefully you do. Now we're going to look at, secondly, the command of baptism. The command of baptism. You can start turning in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. I hope that you've attended a church service where someone has been baptized. Have you? They're up in the baptismal. They share a testimony of God's grace, how they were saved from their sin. They testify to the goodness of God, their new life in Christ. They're responding to the clear command of their Savior. Isn't that a glorious morning? I love it. This is the way it would happen in Simi. And I'm saying this because I hope it happens here, but it's up to you for it to happen, is after they are baptized and they come up from the water, the first thing they hear is the applause of their church family. We can make that happen, right? All right. Uh, this, this beautiful thing happen, happens where these people are saying something to Christ and to you is a glorious morning when baptisms are happening. Now, in Matthew chapter 10, you're there. You might be wondering, well, why, why do we do this? Why, why? Okay, I get what baptism means, the dunking, immersion, all that. But why do we do this stuff? Well, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, Jesus says something very interesting that kind of paves the way for us to understand baptism. He says, so everyone who acknowledges me before men... I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Wow! In other words, Jesus doesn't want secret disciples. That those who follow him, Jesus wants this to be a public declaration. I am following Jesus. Now this text is not referring explicitly to baptism, but it is referring to the reality that Jesus wants his disciples to be known. If you are a disciple, Jesus expects you in following him and obeying this text that other people know that you're his disciple. He doesn't want secret disciples. Baptism, or sorry, your Christianity is intensely personal, but it's never meant to be private. It's public. It's a declaration. And so we, we read and we can gather from the New Testament that this is Jesus' intention, that God's people make themselves known somehow. And now we start reading the New Testament. And what do we see? John the Baptist shows up. Why is he called John the Baptist? Because he's baptizing people. And as John the Baptist's ministry starts decreasing, Jesus' ministry starts increasing. What is Jesus and his disciples doing? They're baptizing people who come to follow him. And we see 
This, as Jesus teaches his disciples all through the Gospels, he kind of culminates his mission to his disciples in Matthew 28. You could turn there real quick if you want to. Maybe you probably already know this text. In Matthew chapter 28, the very end, verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. Now listen to this. The charter for the Christian church, the, the, the mission of the Christian church, or it's been called the Great Commission, He then says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Make disciples of all nations. That's a mission of the church. Well, Jesus, how do I do that? Baptizing them. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Go make disciples and baptize all those disciples that you make. In other words, John the Baptist kicked off the ministry of Jesus by calling everyone to Jesus' attention. Jesus continued his own ministry, baptizing people, he and his disciples. And then as he taught his disciples, he prepared them for a ministry. And then when he sent them out, he said, you're going to go make disciples according to how I taught you to make disciples. And what you're going to do, you're going to baptize people. And then you get to the book of Acts. You guys know the book of Acts is kind of the second part. It's after the Gospels. And what do the disciples who were taught by Jesus do? Go to Acts chapter 2. Peter preaches this first kind of inaugural sermon to all these Jews in Jerusalem. Now keep in mind, many of these Jews in Jerusalem at this time had been guilty of murdering the Messiah, or at least were guilty of wanting him gone. And these people were against this new teaching of the dying and rising Messiah. Uh, The Messiah had come into the world as a humble servant. They had not accepted that reality and so they wanted him crucified and now Peter is standing among these very people now that's bold isn't it that's a death warrant these people had just been willing to kill the Messiah and now Peter's standing up in front of them and he preaches the gospel from the Old Testament and he proclaims the death and resurrection of Christ And then he's bold. Look at verse 36. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. I mean, I can imagine him leaning over a pulpit if he's got one and pointing at the people. You crucified him. He's Lord. He's Christ. and He's risen from the dead. And you are guilty of crucifying the Son of God. And instead of being enraged, As you might expect, the Holy Spirit so accompanied his sermon with the power from on high that verse 37, when they heard of this, they were cut to the heart. Absolute conviction. And said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? Can you imagine a crowd of 3,000 people asking each other, what do we do? We just killed the Messiah. What do we do? What do we do? Is there any way to wash our hands of the guilt of our sin? In verse 38, and Peter said to them, repent, repent. It's a full turning. Give up your old life. Give up what you used to live for. Give up your self-righteousness. Turn from that, repent, and be baptized. It's like this. Turn your life from your former way. Give your life fully to this risen Messiah and show it by stepping forward and being baptized. Now, imagine yourself in that crowd of people who previously 
were so antagonistic to Christians, not yet called Christians, Christ followers, that they were willing to put their leader on a cross. And now, Peter's voice sounds to this huge congregation, and you know that you, you're guilty and you've got to repent. But Peter just doesn't say repent. He says, now come forward, get baptized. Repent and be baptized. <laughs> you would have had, uh, that's a hard thing, isn't it? You had the risk to take that I might step forward and these people might all turn on me because now I'm publicly identifying myself with this dying and rising Savior. And yet I can imagine one person steps forward and then another and thousands of people come forward into the water to be baptized. And we know they did that because it says in verse 41, those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. They got baptized, they identified with their Lord and they were added to the church. Baptized. This is what the apostles did after they were told by Jesus to go make disciples and baptize new disciples. You could look in chapter 8 of, verse, or of the book of Acts. You would see Philip the evangelist preaching the gospel. And in that point where he's preaching to the, the eunuch, the Ethiopian eunuch, this whole section from verse 26 to 40, he is amazing providential setup where the eunuch is reading from Isaiah. He doesn't know what he's reading. Uh, God puts uh, Philip right in the right place at the right time. And Philip is able to explain the gospel to this eunuch. And then in verse 26, the, the eunuch, sorry, not verse 26. Is it 36? Yes, 36. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. Look at this. And the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from getting baptized? I mean, Philip so explained the gospel that he knew it wasn't the baptism that saves. That would be antagonistic to the rest of the Bible's teaching about baptism and salvation. It's justification by faith alone, apart from any works. Baptism does not save anyone. And yet, the proper response to receiving the gospel is to publicly identify yourself with this Jesus by going to the waters of baptism. And so the eunuch that Philip preaches the gospel to understands the way to respond in faith to the gospel message is to publicly identify myself in baptism. It's so part and parcel to the church of the New Testament that Paul can't even write about union with Christ without referring to baptism. Romans chapter 6, he says, Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And he's speaking of the actual act of water baptism, but he's also speaking of the spiritual reality that it represents, that we have been united with Christ, and so we share in his death, we share in his life, we share in his resurrection, we share in his ascension, that all that Christ is is ours, all that was ours is his. It's, it's ludicrous to think of a Christian who was not baptized in the New Testament. It's insane. It doesn't exist. It's just what, from the beginning and the end of the New Testament, baptism is the way that God wants his people to be marked off from the world. Now, to be clear, baptism doesn't save you. I've said this already. It doesn't change your heart. It doesn't cleanse you. We know because there was a thief on the cross who trusted Christ in the end. And what did Jesus say to him? 
You're going to be with me today in paradise. That guy wasn't baptized. We know also that baptism doesn't save you because we know of the story of Simon the magician who did get baptized, but it's clear that he rejected the actual gospel and went off into apostasy and he was not saved. Baptism doesn't save. It doesn't secure something for you that you didn't have before. It is an act of obedience. When God saves a sinner, changing them from the inside out, he desires that that change is publicly illustrated in baptism. Have you been baptized? Some of you Christians are in the process of getting baptized. You're thinking about it. You've already started planning for it. Praise the Lord. What an amazing thing. And let me encourage you to continue in that direction in obedience to the Lord. If you're not a Christian, or sorry, let's say if you are a Christian, but you have not been baptized, I have to ask why. Why would you want to resist the one who has only ever loved you and cared for you? The one who has laid down his life for you? Why would you want to defy the loving arms of the Savior who wants to lead you in obedience? That he only cares for you perfectly. That he wants what's best for you. Why would you resist the hand of blessing in your life? So let me encourage you, if you've not thought about it for whatever reason, let me encourage you out of obedience and love for your Lord, take a step forward and be baptized at some point. Some point soon. Some point soon so that you would publicly be recognized as part of God's people. Why would we be unwilling to pledge allegiance to this amazing Lord that we serve. It would be like a soldier unwilling to wear the general's colors in a battle. I don't want to identify with my leader. It would seem like maybe we're not all in with the leader. So let me encourage you, if that's the case for you, you can come talk to me or some others here in the congregation and talk about what's next and we'll start planning your, your baptism. And what an amazing uh, opportunity that would be for our church family. So we've talked about the word baptism, what that means. We've talked about the command of baptism, how it's clearly given in Scripture and all through the New Testament. Let's talk about the symbol of baptism. Symbol. What does this mean? Okay, what are we doing when we're doing this thing? And there's three main things. There's probably more than this that I could pull out, but for the sake of time, I want to look, about, look at three symbolic meanings in the New Testament about what baptism is symbolizing. And now keep in mind what a symbol is. A symbol is not the reality. If it symbolizes something, it doesn't mean it's causing that thing to happen. So if it's symbolizing the coming of the Holy Spirit in someone's life, it doesn't mean that when you're baptized, that is the moment when the Holy Spirit comes. It's a symbol of something that has already taken place inside. So here's three symbols. First, baptism symbolizes the coming of the Holy Spirit. In Matthew chapter 3, Jesus is going, or sorry, John the Baptist is John the Baptist is baptizing all his followers, okay? And they're coming to him, and John has something very fascinating to say. He refers to Jesus, and he says this, I baptize with water, but someone mightier than I is coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts chapter 2, at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes in power to indwell God's people. This is 
the work of God, he not only saves people, but then he comes in to live with them in the person of the Holy Spirit. Every believer shares in the indwelling and the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, baptism is a symbol of that work of God. You were given the Holy Spirit the moment you believed. He indwelled you and he fills you as you live your life in obedience to him. Now, baptism doesn't cause the Spirit to give you a little more power or something like that. It is a symbol of the gift of the Spirit. He's gonna, we're, it's, it's as if we're being baptized in the Spirit when we go down into the water. Here's a second symbol. This is probably the most prominent throughout Scripture. It symbolizes our union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. It symbolizes our union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. The plunge into the water is like a death fully submerged as if in a grave, rising up like a resurrection. Now, let me just say as kind of a side note, this is why historically different strains of churches has had different ideas of how many dunks should happen in a baptism. Um, Some have said that the best way to picture union with Christ is in one dunk, death, burial, resurrection. One dunk. Others have wanted to emphasize in Matthew 28 the Trinity in baptism. So they do three Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now I am under the opinion that there are a lot of things that are very clear in Scripture, and this is not a big thing to fight over. Whether you do one dunk or three dunk, I think the symbol of death, burial, and resurrection is clear. I think the symbol of the Holy Spirit's coming to life is clear. And so I don't want to be dogmatic about it, but if this is your first baptism in your church, you're going to see this morning, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Because we are historically a Grace Brethren church that has done that. Now that emphasizes the Trinity, but I don't want that to de-emphasize the singularity of being identified with one death, one burial, and one resurrection. Because that is also emphasized in scripture as what a baptism signifies. Turn to Romans chapter 3. We read this already. I read it to you. I don't think you returned there, but I want you to see it. So Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 3, he is speaking of baptism as a way of speaking of our union with Christ. Verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. He is saying that and the moment we were saved, we were spiritually baptized into the death of Christ. We were spiritually raised with Christ to new life. Now that happens spiritually. Baptism is symbolizing that. Do you get that? Baptism is a symbol of your union with Christ. Union with your Savior. Union with Christ is really at the heart of the gospel. Let me, let me explain this. It is speaking of this reality that when you trust Christ, all your liabilities, your guilt, your sin, your shame, your failures, and all of Christ's assets, his perfect righteousness, 
his substitutionary death, his perfect obedience to the Father. Those things are shared, okay? My failures, my sin, my guilt is shared with Christ. His righteousness, his obedience, his perfections are shared with me. And Jesus goes to the cross, and on the cross he dies to pay for all my mess-ups, sins, guilt, shame, you name it, all the things I've ever done. He pays for them. He rises from the dead victorious over those things. And in the same way, all his assets are mine. They're given to me. Therefore, in union with Christ, sins penalty is paid for, sins are forgiven, and then I'm clothed in his righteousness. I am treated as if I am perfectly innocent as he was. All the, the beady obedience that he accrued to his name is now accrued and given freely to me by faith. You can think of it like this. If you want an analogy to help you get, around, get your mind around this, think of it like an infinitely wealthy prince, okay? An infinitely wealthy prince choosing to marry a deeply indebted prostitute. This is actually a biblical analogy. This is the book of Hosea, so I'm not making this up. Okay? By virtue of the marriage, all the problems of the indebted prostitute are taken on by the prince. I am married to this woman. All her problems are now mine. All her sins, I will take them as if they're mine. And what Jesus does is he takes them upon himself. This is amazing. And then he voluntarily goes to the cross to freely pay the penalty for the sinner. To pay it in full. And then he takes from his infinite riches robes of righteousness and places them on the prostitute. Cleans her up. Pays her debts. And then invites her into the very palace that she would never have deserved to be. And he brings her before the king and says, all her sins are paid for. All her filth is gone. And now she's clothed in the perfect robes of my righteousness. She is my equal. We are married. This is why the Bible calls the church the bride of Christ. Because Christ has so loved the church that he has taken her in as if she were his very bride. Baptism is representing that reality. When you are being dunked under and brought back up, it is as if you are being reminded. It is not as if. We are being reminded that we were with Christ in his death. And he was paying for our sins. And we are with him in his resurrection. And he conquered death on our behalf. And we will share in his ascension. This is the amazing message of the gospel. And friends, let me just say, if you happen to come into this room and you're not a Christian, first of all, I'm so glad you're here and there's no other place we'd rather have you be on a Sunday morning. Come back again. But the reality is, you can have this very salvation to be yours right now. By faith, trusting in Jesus, all your sins put on him, all his righteousness put on you, the full and glorious transfer where he takes all your filth and pays for it on the cross and he gives you all his perfect righteousness and it's yours forever. And then you could even move forward with being baptized at some point and symbolizing your union with the Savior. Trust 
him today. If you haven't yet, make this the day of salvation for you. If you have not yet trusted Christ, that Christ can be yours fully. Now, these amazing truths of baptism need to be at the front of our minds when we're doing a baptism. Wayne Grudem, a theologian, says, These amazing truths of passing through the waters of judgment safely, of dying and rising with Christ and having our sins washed away, are truths of momentous and eternal proportion and ought to be an occasion for giving great glory and praise to God. If churches would teach these truths more clearly, baptism would be the occasion of much more blessing in the church. And so I want to teach these very clearly so that we're all blessed by remembering the amazing gospel that these things that we're about to do in the water represent. Here's the last thing that baptism symbolizes. It symbolizes the coming or the gift of the Holy Spirit. It symbolizes our union in the death and resurrection of Christ. And third, it symbolizes our entrance into the body of Christ. Baptism is where your personal faith becomes public testimony. Baptism is where your invisible faith becomes visible to a specific body. Baptism is a dramatic reenactment of the salvation that Jesus commands every believer to participate in. And in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we get this idea where it says, in one spirit, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. In one spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, we were baptized into one body. This is speaking of the body of Christ. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is, is saying that the Spirit, when we were saved, He baptized us, immersed us, placed us in a body of believers. The Spirit did that in placing us into the universal church, and then the symbol of baptism is being brought into the local church. In Acts 2, we already read it, Peter preaching to all the Jews, repent and be baptized, and what did they do? They were baptized, and what did that mean? It says at the end, they were added to the church. Baptism is always the front door of entry into the church. So the Bible teaches about entrance into the church, or church membership is always, baptism is the act of entering into the body of Christ. I did a wedding a few months ago, and as I stood up there with the bride and groom, I asked them a question. This is common. You've probably seen this in a wedding. I asked them, what symbol do you have for this marriage covenant? What symbol? And what did they do? I have a ring. The ring was pulled out. It was a symbol of a promise. A promise is invisible. You can't see it, feel it, touch it. A promise is an invisible reality. You can maybe hear a promise, but once it's said, it's, it's gone. Baptism is something visible, tangible, something that can be done, witnessed, noticed, recognized by a body that shows and signifies and makes public invisible faith in God. I can't see your faith. Nobody here can see your profession of faith. They can't see faith. I can see someone in the tank getting baptized. And so the symbol of entering into the body of Christ is baptism. One uh, scholar named Bobby Jameson said, 
Baptism is like the soldier's uniform, identifying him to his command and fellow soldiers. It's like a wedding ring, signifying that God's people have pledged themselves wholly to Jesus. Another author wrote, Baptism doesn't save a person, but Jesus means for his saved individuals to publicly identify with him and his people. And it's one piece of how his citizens become official. It's how they wave the flag. See, this is why churches historically have always required that baptism be a prerequisite for church membership. If one person is not willing to put on the uniform or put on the ring, not willing to wave the flag, not willing to participate in the ceremony that Jesus has given to the church as a welcome ceremony, it's questionable if they should really be full-fledged participants in membership of the church, if they're unwilling to do the basic call that Jesus has given to all his disciples. And so baptism is the entry into the body of Christ. Some implications. We'll wrap this up here. First of all, if you're not a believer, can I plead with you to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ for full forgiveness, that you would be united with him and have your sins forgiven, that you would be then given the righteousness of Christ yours freely, and that you would share an eternal life, and that you would also make that public in baptism someday? Second, if you're a believer but you're not baptized, I kind of plead with you to take this step of obedience, not because you might earn your salvation in doing it, but because God has freely bestowed upon you salvation that you did not deserve, that you could not earn, and that Jesus means to bless you. He is always only ever meant to bless his people. And in inviting you to do this, he's inviting you into his blessing. So would you be baptized? And then third, if you're a believer and you've already been baptized, would you understand your role in this baptism that we're especially right now about to participate in? Would you understand your role in baptisms that happen here in the future? So Sean and Jasmine are about to be baptized. That's, I mean, this is a moment to celebrate. Thank you, friends and family, for showing up. This is, praise the Lord for what God is doing here and has done in their lives to save them. And what's happening, what will happen when we do this, is there will be three monumental statements. I just want to make this clear so we understand what's happening. First, when they're getting baptized, they are saying to you, sorry, let's start. They're saying something to you, but that'll come second. First, they're saying to Christ, they're saying, I trust you, Jesus. I want to obey you, Jesus. I trust your word. I trust your shed blood paid for my sins. I trust your perfect righteousness is credited to my account. I trust that you have saved me and I wholeheartedly commit my life to you, Jesus. That's the first thing they're saying. And they're saying it publicly. The second thing they're saying is to you. They're saying, I'm not with the world anymore. I want to be set apart from the world, distinct from the world. I don't want to be identified with the world. I want to be identified with Christ and his church. I want to be a part of this family. And I am committing myself to you. They're saying that to you if you're a member of the church here. The third thing they're saying, the third thing they're saying, sorry, they're not saying, the third thing you're saying, 
The third aspect is, is that you're actually saying something back to them. Non-verbally, but this is what baptism means. You're saying, we receive you. You're saying, we affirm you. You're saying, we welcome you into the family. You're saying, we take responsibility for your souls. A few months ago, we were in a courtroom, Ashley and I and others from our family, to see our new little niece get adopted. She had been uh, in the home for a couple of years, but not yet fully adopted. And the day had finally come where the judge would officially make this little child a member of uh, the family. And the judge had to make some statements, some very official statements first before it happened. And one of the things he said is he asked the family, he said, do you fully understand the responsibility that you're taking on when this child is adopted? Do you fully understand this, that you will now treat this child as if she were your very own biological child, that there will be no distinction between your real biologically born child, children and this child that you're now adopting. There will be no distinction because this child has the same legal relationship with you. Do you understand that you are responsible to care for them as if they're your very own? And of course, the parents said, yes, we understand that. And then the judge did a beautiful thing. He announced that that child was now formally and legally a member of the family. And we all rejoiced. We all rejoiced. It's kind of like what's about to happen. It's kind of like what's about to happen. Is you need to understand that you're taking responsibility to treat the people being baptized as if they're your very own. They have made commitments to you. They've made commitments to Christ. And I've talked to them about these things uh, leading up to this. We've had more in-depth conversations and heard more of the story than you'll hear this morning. But now this is your opportunity to hear a little bit and to rejoice with them and then to receive them into the family. Let's celebrate this together. I'm going to pray. Uh, Michael will close with a song and then we'll have the baptism. Let's pray. Lord, what a gospel that you've given us, good news for sinners. That we can be fully and completely forgiven, washed clean, and dwelt by the Spirit, united with Christ fully and forever. And thank you that you've not left us alone in this, that you've made this something that we share together in a family, a church family. Thank you that you know it's best for the church, and so you've given things like baptism and communion to the church that it might strengthen us, that it might bring us joy, that it might make our light shine to the nations. So Lord, our desire is to be distinct. And thank you that you've given us baptism as a way to make ourselves different from the world, set apart for your glory. We thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.